my name is Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank uh, Dick and Peggy and, and the committee for inviting me to speak at this conference. It really uh, is amazing. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people in this room. Um, I hate people, but this is really uh, just, just for sheer numbers. It's great. I, I, um, I'm glad you're not all sitting behind me. That's uh, the best part. But I, I'm, I'm honored to be here, and I'm... I, I, uh, love the speakers I've heard so far, Marty and, and uh, Bruce and, and Joanne. This is, uh, I'm sort of the buzzkill after hearing those people. I, I am, um, I wander around for a while, so I can't remember my own talk, so it comes back to me as I start telling it. So just, um, if you can be patient, I'll, I start out really slow and then build to the shattering climax. Um, <laughs> Um, I know this is an AA meeting, but I used to drink, and uh, I, have to say, I have to say that in L.A. sometimes. Um, and um, I never planned to be an alcoholic. I never thought I would ever, certainly never wind up here. All I wanted was to be rich and famous and adored by women. And I don't think that that's too much to ask, really, <laughs> to this day. But um, so I, I, I had a normal childhood. Neither of my parents was alcoholic. Um, my, uh, I was an only child. I uh, enjoy being alone. I don't know that I've ever been truly lonely because I don't know what the difference is. Uh, my dad was a carpenter, and as, as I've always said, my mother was a humble virgin woman, and um, <laughs> that presented problems from the start. I uh, grew up in, in L.A., primarily in Orange County. My parents, I was born in the San Fernando Valley, and my parents fled there to Orange County, where my dad was the only Democrat in that county um, in, in 1957, and uh, I was, you know, allowed to be tormented by anybody who saw our bumper sticker for Kennedy on the back of the car. Uh, and I always felt different anyway. I was trying to find something to blame it on. Uh, I didn't like people uh, at all. Um, I liked humanity. I had great thoughts about humanity and where humanity ought to be and how people ought to be and the shoulds of humanity. But where two or more are gathered... I don't think so. I, um, <laughs> I um, could not fit in. I was, I was geeky, unlike I am now. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't nearly so buff then. Um, as, as, as guys in my group like to remind me, my ass-kicking days are ahead of me. And, uh, <laughs> But <laughs> name one assassin who wasn't a geek uh, to start out with, huh? And um, <laughs> chew on that for a while. I um, I forgot where I was. I, uh, <laughs> but I just I was 
uncomfortable in the company of other people. I was uncomfortable in my own house. I was uncomfortable around my parents. I knew they had expectations. And I was uncomfortable around, you know, my peers at school. And I was sick a lot because I had asthma when I was a kid and I was home wheezing most of the time. Uh, fortunately, school came easy to me. I was really a really good speller, which was to help me with women later on. And uh, I, was, I managed to cruise through school and get decent grades and pass and, and got out of school with no notoriety whatsoever. Um, I was in the drama club. You know, and I don't even like drama, but I, that's where I, because they didn't threaten me because I could I could whoop any of them. And um, <laughs> I got out of school when I was when I was uh, 17. I, I had an early birthday and went right into the music industry as a, a, a clerk in a record store. And I was working there. <laughs> um, when some fellows that I went to high school with came in, and I had known them from afar because they were sort of the punks of the school. And um, I've always admired, I admire secretly people who are, I, I love punks. I love girls with tattoos. I like girls with piercings. It turns me on. <laughs> um, And I have great respect and fondness for guys that strap knives on their legs. And I just like rebellion. I'm a rebel myself. I just don't tell anybody. Uh, I got. I used to. I, I have a lot of potential for that. But I. Uh, I just. You know, my mom and dad wouldn't approve. So. I always. <laughs> I always get dragged into a counselor's office or something. I get I get it hauled in the principal's office, the counselor's office, the priest's office, the teacher's office. Every year, they'd haul us all in, and my parents got to sit there while they said, you know, Charles has lots of potential. We just don't understand why he doesn't do anything with it. And my response was always the same, and that is, I understand that I have potential. You know it now. Now my parents know it. It seems like everyone knows I've got potential. And I will use that potential when I'm damn good and ready to. <laughs> but I'm not going to use it now. And I may not use it tomorrow. When I do use it, I hope you're wearing sunglasses, Scooter, because I'm going to light you up. <laughs> but until then, it might be a nice idea if you go wipe your idiotic concern from my potential on some other sucker because if you were such hot shit, you wouldn't be a high school counselor now, would you? <laughs> um, it never exactly came out in those words. Um, I usually said something like, I'll try harder. But, um, rebellion has always been, you know, just a roy I'm, an, I'm a festering roiling volcano of rebellion I just um, I can't act it out you know I just don't act that way I, I'm a passive re rebel you know it it leaks out the anger and the disappointment and the fear and all that stuff that rebels have leaks out with me in other areas of my life you can't hold it in it has to go someplace and and I was one of those people that it just kind of leaked out in sarcasm it leaked out in superiority when I knew I was inferior it leaked out in fear. It leaked out in being unwilling to take any risks in my life because I was afraid. And uh, I, I, like Marty, got, got a good, I got a, and, and Bruce, got, I got a decent draft 
status. I, I was I grew up in the 60s. I was I was 18 during the Tet Offensive, and I was 1A uh, for the draft. And and I got a decent lottery number and didn't have to go in the service. And you would think someone like me would parlay that because my father, my dad was a military guy. He was in, he was a drill instructor in the Marines for eight years and uh, back in the China Marine days. And um, so he, I'm sure he was a little disappointed in the issue of his loins. If you want to know the truth. Um, <laughs> My mom had had three full-term babies that died at birth. And so when I was born, I think there were several expectations uh, there and, and a lot of hope put on me, and I, I, I just assumed that, you know. And I didn't want to do anything to displease my parents, but I couldn't talk to them. They were older than the other kids' parents. They were about 10 years older than everybody else's parents. And, and my dad, like I said, he was a cabinet maker. And he, all the other kids' dads would go to work with a briefcase and a suit and go off and stride out of the house and get in their Lincoln and drive off to work. And my dad would go, you know, he'd, he'd have a lunchbox and those great clothes that guys wear with sawdust on his glasses. And he would go out in, in his squishy-soled shoes and just go to the corner and wait for the carpool guy to show up. And I was just embarrassed by them. I was embarrassed by our living standards, which actually, if I look back on it now, we're, we're fine. But I, was, I wanted my parents to be something, and I, thought, I always felt like I wasn't getting my needs met. And we didn't have a lot of resources. My parents always made sure I had clothing and food and stuff. They were, they were great parents. And... Um, and, but I was embarrassed by them, and I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't articulate this feeling of why I just felt different from everybody else. And then I'm at this, you know, I don't like people anyway, and they're all, everybody assumes I'm going to have to go out and work with people. I mean, I, I would have liked to have been a mortician or something, and at least, um, <laughs> at least get them when they just will shut up about <laughs> everything. And uh, I don't know, I just, I just felt awful all the time. Just this unsettled dis-ease. I was 6'2 and 127 pounds of vibrating testosterone. And I, uh, then these guys came into the record store and asked me if I wanted to go to a party. You know, And I said, okay. And I'd never been to a party under the assumption that there would be people, I guess, at the party. And, I, and so I went to this party, and I, I went with a buddy of mine, John, who I'd grew, grown up with. And, and he drove, and John was a... John was the opposite of me. He, he was good-looking. He had that Paul McCartney kind of a look to him, and girls were, swarmed this guy, and I thought I could at least get the runoff. Uh, uh, and so I, I hung out with John, and we were friends, and, and he was a drummer in a band, and all, you know, it was just all that stuff. And, and I, I was going to play guitar, not today, but later. And... Um, <laughs> And I went to this party, and, and I stood there at that party, and I remember vividly feeling just the way I feel normally. I just feel awkward. I, I, like, I just don't fit in. No one here, everybody here is having a good time. They were, everybody was drinking. There was all kinds of substances going on. It was 1968 or 69, I think. And um, it was all happening, you know. And I, I'm standing there feeling, like, so obvious that I'm straight, you know, and not those days it meant don't take drugs. But um, <laughs> the language, we were just talking about that before the meeting. The language is so confusing now. But uh, um, I just felt 
alien in this place. And then somebody walked by and just handed me a can of malt liquor. And having no better options, I just started drinking this can of malt liquor. Now, I had not been drunk ever before. I had had sips of my father's beer from time to time. I had never had a mixed drink. I just was not interested. I thought it made people weird. I had seen how people came to our house. My parents were, would entertain sometimes, and they would have friends from work come over. And I saw how they behaved, and I, I thought, I don't want to be like them. They're, ugh, just don't even, you know, which is how I felt about everybody. But uh, <laughs> they were sort of heightened my sense of that. And, um, and I got this malt liquor, and I started sipping on it, thinking, this is great. Oh, this is good. This is a good call coming to this party, you know. And I drank about halfway through that can of malt liquor, which was one of those big, you know, those ones that are this long. You know, you, know, you set it on the floor, and it's still right at arm level. <laughs> and um, I got about halfway through that can, and all of a sudden, it occurred to me that I had been way too hard on you people. <laughs> I started to feel differently about everybody around me. I started to feel comfortable, happy. Well, not happy, but <laughs> I felt radiant. I felt charming. I felt comfortable in my skin. I felt like a mixture of William Powell and David Niven and Errol Flynn with a little John Lennon thrown in there to kind of spice it up and make it more palatable for the women my age, and uh, which is a hard trick to pull off when you look like Sherman in the Mr. Peabody cartoons. <laughs> uh, I gave it, I gave it my best shot, and um, and I started to feel like, you know how you, I mean, I don't have to explain anybody in here how alcoholics feel. When I drank, when I was drinking that night. All of a sudden, I forgot who I was. I forgot everything that had happened in the past that bothered me. I forgot every fear that I had of what's, of what's going to happen tomorrow. And for about 25 minutes, I was there. Just there. And that's the only place I wanted to be when I drank. I didn't want to be drunk. I didn't want to be wet in my pants. I didn't want to be embarrassing people. I didn't want to be hurting others. All I drank for was that sense of just being right Good and there. You know, everything is about to get better in about 20 minutes. You just ride in the crest of joy all the time. You just, it ha the wave hasn't broken yet. You're just riding it and riding it. And just, oh my God, what is happening to me? This is great. Um, I don't know how many cans of that malt liquor I went through that night. Um, I went into a blackout. I wound up running alongside of my buddy's car as we were driving home, uh, holding on to the door handle while he drove and throwing up all over myself and just laughing my ass off. Because I had been, I'd been there, you know. I don't, uh, alcoholics, if you don't know where there is, you're not one of us. We know that we're not drinking to get drunk. We're drinking to get there. Uh, unfortunately, as time progresses, I would miss the off-ramp for there. You know, uh, I was just drinking and going along going, oh, whoa, that was there. Oh, well, I just keep going, you know. And, um, and, uh, 
and then we start having consequences, but that's all right, um, because I've been there. <laughs> I know there's not going anywhere. It's always going to be there. I just have to find it. And I know how to find it now. And I, I got sick that night. I'm a blackout drinker, and I have the wimpiest drunk log in Alcoholics Anonymous, really. I, I have never, uh, you know, I've heard your stories. I love them. I love hearing the hospitalizations and the gunshots and all that stuff. But I have, uh, and the totaling out of car. I've never, I've never come out of a blackout, you know, with someone saying, okay, cut the red wire. You know, I've never had uh, <laughs> Never, uh, <laughs> never come out of a blackout yelling, keep going, men, the summit's just ahead. I have never had that happen. I've, I, I've never come out of a blackout saying a, a damn thing, really. I, uh, I generally come out of blackouts and people are talking to me, um, saying stuff like, boy, I bet that hurt. <laughs> I, um, I'm the kind of alcoholic who believes that the fastest way down a long flight of stairs is to just relax. <laughs> and uh, if you come up later, I'll show you the scars on my forehead. Uh, I, I love alcohol. I love the experience. It made me, it made some of us really active. And, and act out our stuff, and it made some of us just grow deeper and deeper into whatever, wh- whichever floor you can take the elevator to inside. That's where I wanted to go. Just keep going down and down. Some of us, you know, um, acted it out and were violent and troublesome and have really colorful drunkologues. Um, you know, we're the same alcoholic. It's just that you, you did time. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I uh, I came out of blackouts at, at the dry cleaners. Um, I remember coming out of one in Santa Monica on Ocean Park Boulevard, which is coincidentally where our Saturday night meeting is right across the street from. And I, I was in there one time. I just all of a sudden arrived. You know, and you know, if you're new, I got to welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. A, we're glad you're here. And B, Blackouts are interesting, and I'm sure many of you have blacked out before, but it's, and if you don't understand it, it's where you arrive where someone who looks incredibly like you has been doing stuff to embarrass you right before you got there. <laughs> and you, therefore, are left to clean up the mess. And I remember standing in this, all of a sudden, just appearing in front of Morris the Martinizing King and uh, the guy has leaned over the counter going boxed or hangers <laughs> and like any good alcoholic I just said hangers I turned around and walked out and I thought what the hell did I bring in there I I don't even have a job that requires dry cleaning um, by that time I'd gotten out of the out of the uh, music business I'd, I'd made one foray into a uh, being the receiving clerk at a motorcycle shop when the, during the, the uh, easy rider chopper phase and would drink with, I drank with all these bikers, you know, we had in the, in the shop, it was a manufacturing place and, um, called AEE Choppers in, uh, in uh, Orange County. And the guy who ran the place was, was a biker and, and uh, he cleaned himself up and got some Edwardian suits and now he was a businessman. But he hired all these bikers to work for him except for me. You know, and I fit in really well there. Um, 
But I was the receiving clerk, and they had a welcome wagon that they would push around the place. It was the parts puller who had a, a shopping cart full of newspapers, and in it he had about eight bottles of booze. And he would come by in the afternoon and just, you know, what do you have? And pour you a glass of bourbon, slide it across the counter, and off he'd go, making his rounds to all the welders and the drill press operators, you know, which uh, <laughs> we, had, we had some renegades in there. I mean, we had one guy named Gary who looked... A lot of these guys... They, you ever see those old tin-type pictures of the, of the, of the, in the Old West when, they, when they'd kill a bandit and they would prop him up in the casket and take a picture of him? <laughs> these guys all look like that. And um, <laughs> these were hardcore drinking, drugging guys. And you'd hear them in the back of the shop, the welders, you'd hear the <laughs> But nothing, nothing after that for about 25 seconds and you'd hear the click of the of the thing that lights the welding torch, and this huge kablam in the back of the room. And then, and then you'd hear this, this, this whiskey voice go, God damn. Uh, um, I, I love these guys. Um, they would protect me. If I went to a bar and any of them were drinking there, anybody that gave me any crap, they'd just go up and circle them, you know? <laughs> Nobody bothered me. And I was lucky, you know? And I, I never got into fights because I perfect, perfected this action. <laughs> just feel the wind of a fist come by of it, you know? Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Go get him, Sharky. <laughs> they just go out and remove the person's skin. But I, um, I drank with these guys. Then I got, I got, I wanted to be a writer all my life because what else is a guy like me going to do? Uh, my, certainly my f- basketball playing days are ahead of me too. But I, um, I wanted to be a writer in my heart. I really did. But I never quite put the connection, made the connection between being a writer and actually writing something, um, there was a little disconnect there. I got the, and I, I got a job in publishing for a while. I was a, I was a receiving clerk at a bookstore, and I was working there and, and drank my way through that job. And I was only going to be there for, because I'd heard T.S. Eliot, this is, this is how I think. I heard T.S. Eliot was, a, 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 he worked in a bank for a while because he wanted to preserve his intellectual energy for his poems. And the bank was not as taxing because it was wrote over and over stuff that you can do, and it doesn't tax your creative energy, which you can take home and write poetry. I thought, perfect, I'll be a receiving clerk, and I will not tax my creative energy, and then I'll go home and write. But first, I'm going to have a couple of drinks. (laughs) You laugh, but that, yeah. You know what happens. I mean, I don't even have to tell you the story. Go home, and this is probably years into my drinking now, and I'd gotten married, um... And I was really touched by what Joanne said this afternoon and, and also what Bruce said because we, uh, we really do injure people that we don't have any clue we're hurting. When I got sober, I thought I hadn't hurt anybody but myself. And um, I married a woman and I thought in, my, in the back of my mind that being married would make me a whole person for some reason. I thought that putting the two of us together would somehow make me rise to the occasion and become a real man. And that that was what men did, you know. And um, it didn't happen, you know. I, I I married her, and I was, and she was not an alcoholic. She tried to drink with me. It was it was kind of comical before it became annoying. 
Um, and she would stop and say, whew, i got to stop. I'm starting to, I'm starting to lose control. And, and I would think to myself, that's exactly the problem we've got. You're a quitter. Um, <laughs> see, when I drink, I'm just starting to feel some control. I'm out of control sober. I'm angry and restless and irritable and discontented sober. When I start drinking, I start feeling like the world is getting in my kind of capsule. You know, I can, I can maintain it this way. Um, and I started to feel more comfortable. And the odd thing about alcoholics I found, you know, we, before I married her, and this is a story Joanne will appreciate, um, my first date, my second date with her, I went to the Holiday Inn in Santa Monica and I drank for about four hours. And in that time, I had solved the John F. Kennedy assassination. <laughs> I'd, I'd been surveying all the documents. I'd been to the, you know, I'd heard Mort Saul's discussion of it and I went to the library and got books and magazines and I had it all out and I'd figured it out over about a half a, ga- half a quart of bourbon and so I went to her house and knocked on the door and she opened the door and I came inside and it was near tears I sat her down and I had to tell her not to tell anybody else because this is dangerous stuff but I've solved the Kennedy assassination I laid it all out for her you know and um she went to her therapist the next day. <laughs> Not because of me, but she, she'd been going to therapy, and she told her therapist what had happened. And her therapist said, you must never see this man again. You must never see him again. So about four months later, we moved in together, and, and um, she adored me. She adored me, and I didn't get it. And the more she adored me, the less I wanted to be involved, you know, because I thought, I thought love being an emotion that when it started to fade or when the emotion started to change, that the love was gone. And, and I just would be cruel to her and I didn't lay hands on her. And I'll tell you something, there are a lot of ways to hurt a woman without touching her. And I would just cut, just use my tongue and like a hedge trimmer and just go right into where her weaknesses were and just carve a little space around it just so she'd, just to keep her jumping back because that was all I could do to make her just get away from me. Just leave me alone. Don't get close to me. And I can't hit you and I can't do that because I know that's wrong, but I can sure keep you away with my mouth. And I did that. And it just broke, it broke her heart. And, uh, after about five years of marriage, she wanted a divorce and, and, um, you know, her brother, Bob, was, he'd been in, in a couple of institutions and had been hospitalized for alcoholism and was a bad drunk, but he wasn't, he wasn't an alcoholic as far as I could see. And um, he, came, he came to our house one time and, and we were, you know, I, I liked Bob. I hit it off with him immediately. We got a half gallon of Jack Daniels and started drinking and having a great time and listening to music and chatting and yakking like we do because we know each other. We know, you know, the big picture. We got it, man. You know, you just you get that, oh, yeah, it's working. It's really working. It's working. I'm there and it's happening. And, and Bob and I were connected. Uh-oh, phone. Uh, <laughs> someone's dating an Al-Anon. Uh, <laughs> Are you at a meeting? I hear laughter. Um, so, 
Now I forgot where I was. So, thank you. So Bob and I were having a great time, and all of a sudden I look over, and there's my, we had not married yet, my soon-to-be wife going like that. So I walk over, excuse me, Bob, one second. I walk over to her, and we go into the bedroom, and she shuts the door, and she says, near tears, stop giving Bob drinks. Bob is an alcoholic. And I said, you've told me that before, but Bob is no more alcoholic than I am. (laughs) You are a nag. That's the problem here. And why don't you just back it up, sister, because Bob and I are having a good time. (laughs) And I walk back out, and Bob and I laughing and scratching, having a great time. And uh, uh, two weeks later, Bob was dead. He's 25 years old, the same age that I was at the time. He went swimming in Lake Castaic in the morning and he, uh, or in the afternoon one, one Saturday and didn't come out of the lake. And his friend who was with him was looking for him and nobody could find him. And they had to drag the lake the next day to find him. And he was a strong swimmer and he's one of the handsomest guys I've ever seen in my life. And he had a five-year-old daughter and a wife and, and he was dead. And no one talked about alcohol and, and stuff like that after that. I went up and got his car and it was silent. There was no discussion of it, you know. And we just kept quiet about it. And, um, and so <clears throat> alcohol was affecting people around me. My friend John was getting sicker. I was getting sicker. Everybody seemed to be getting sicker, but no one wanted to talk about it because I'm living the writer's life now. I'm working at a receiving dock, and I'm going to write something soon. And, uh, <laughs> but the, getting there wasn't as easy as it used to be. And, and uh, George Orwell one time said that, that a tyrant wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. And I believe that's true with alcoholics, too. You know, when I wasn't drinking, I put that mask out there and tried to make you see that, you know, or think that this is what I am right here. This is really me. I didn't believe it, but I held it out there to try to make you like me. Because when I say I don't like people, I have that alternate alcoholic problem, which is I I hate the human race, but I demand its approval at the same time, which is it'll give you torque in your life, that's for sure. And I... (laughs) And I'd hold that mask out there and want you to like me because I will act like this for you. And I'll play the dummy and play silly and play smart or play whatever game you want me to play so you'll like me. And I'll have contempt for you because I have contempt for myself. And then when I started drinking, what happened was that the alcohol filled the big gap between what's going on in here and that mask. And it made me believe that what I held out there for you was really me. Alcohol made me feel like I was really, that's the real Charlie, is when I'm drinking. I don't want to be like I am when I'm sober, when I'm angry and disconnected and frustrated and fearful, and I don't know how to connect with anybody. But when I drink, I feel like a real human being, like it really happens. And you can't make somebody like me stop drinking on principles, like our speaker said before. We, we're impervious to that information because the person giving it to me doesn't understand the basic thing that I can't articulate about it. You know, why do you drink so much? I don't know why I drink so much. Mostly to counter questions like that. (laughs) Which is another one of those backup responses, you know, sarcasm. Everything that I could do to keep people away. And my work was getting sloppy, and I had a whole desk drawer full of unfinished work, and I was probably going to get canned from that job soon enough. I'd been there for 12, you know, eight years at the time, and... um, it was my stepping stone job into writing. And, and I was sick. I started to get physically ill. I started to get 
you know, I started peeing blood, but I wouldn't call my doctor because he might not like me if I told him I was peeing blood. It was, embar- <laughs> it was embarrassing to me to be peeing blood because then he might start asking about my drinking. And I knew there was a lot of drink. I knew it was drinking that was the problem because I, I would wind up, you know, after I'd been drinking, I would, get, I would get stomach cramps and abdominal cramps so bad I'd have to call somebody to come get me and take me to the emergency room. And I'd go there and they would, you know, give me Valium the next morning and, and let me go. And, and I'd take this Valium. And I have a little, you know, a little drug excursion too. But I don't, drugs, I have a problem with drugs and, and that is that drugs make me high. <laughs> they make me loaded. I don't want to be loaded. I want to be there. <laughs> I don't want to be sitting around smoking a joint, you know. How many times in a row can you listen to Layla in, before, uh, before, you, before you wind up at 3 in the morning, you're in the kitchen eating ketchup packets? You know? uh, I ate a bouillon cube one time uh, with the rationale that it's crunchy and it tastes like chicken. Uh, I took, um, when I worked at the motorcycle shop, uh, guys were giving me speed so I could increase my productivity. And um, it was, I don't know what, I'd have no... I don't know anything about the street language or quality. There were little white pills with an X on them. And he said, take two or three of these. And I, I'm not an addict because I never bought. But I, um, I would take them. And, um, and I would be productive as hell. But I just don't like the sensation of my eyes trying to beat me into the next room. You know? <laughs> It's not my style. And um, one time my friend John and I were out. We were going to go to this bar that we hung out at called the Shimmy Shack, which ought to tell you something. Um, and I smoked a joint before I went in there, and it was laced with PCP. And I knew it. I just, I, I didn't, I just smoked it to be polite. And um, <laughs> I got in this bar, and I had half a beer, and I just started hallucinating like crazy. And, and I don't know about anybody else. I don't. I'm thinking I'm going to wind up like some brain-dead person who, can only, who only has the power of thought and hearing, you know, and sight, while somebody leans over and goes, how are you today, you know? And I had a terror of that, you know? I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to muster my strength to get you know, that up? But um, my last... What are you doing today? I'm saving energy. I'm just saving energy so I can give them that last big push and then go. But, but you, I can't do that because people won't like me. I don't do that in the car. I don't give people the finger in the car. In L.A., they'll blow you away. But, I mean, I don't, I don't do it just out of principle because I, I, I just don't like giving the finger to people because they, they won't like me. And even though they deserve it, you know, it's just a lot of decisions to make all at once. And just assume keep my hands on the wheel and not do it. But I, I always felt it. You know, honey, do you really need another drink? Probably not, but I'm uh, <laughs> just going to have one. Um, you know, you're late again. Are you having problems at home? No, everything's fine. I'm really, um, <laughs> it, 
the anger leaks out in every area of life. It leaks out in, in passive kinds of aggression like I have, and it leaks out in fisticuffs like a lot of people uh, break into. It, le- it leaks out in every way. And yet the thing that I'm convinced of is that it, I'm the same alcoholic as every other alcoholic in this room. The same alcoholic. I'm not a, you know, I don't have any differentiation. I'm not a real alcoholic. I'm just an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic and something. You know, we laugh about that in L.A. I mean, you hear it all the time. I'm an alcoholic and I'm a drug addict. Well, okay, Don G. says, you know, that's like saying, I'm from Los Angeles and I'm from California. Um, I heard a guy in my group one night who said, Dave probably remembers this, that this guy got up and said, uh, saying that you're an alcoholic and an addict is like saying that you're a German shepherd dog. (laughs) But it's, you know, I'm just not any of those things. I'm just an alcoholic because I'll tell you something. uh, I hear people all the time say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and my drug of choice is marijuana. I'm an alcoholic and my drug of choice was crack. I'm an alcoholic and my drug of no choice was alcohol. And I had to realize what my drug of no choice was. And unless, until I understand what the drug of no choice is, I haven't got a chance. And I I never had any assumptions that I was an addict or anything. I just didn't understand what it was that was eating me alive. And I, like I said, I'm peeing blood. I'd call the doctor to tell him that he was the greatest friend a guy ever had on some afternoon when I was drunk, but I wouldn't call him to tell him I was sick because he might not like me. I peed blood for about a month into my sobriety, and my sponsor finally, I got a sponsor at about 58 days, you know, and and when I got him, he said, I said, well, I've been peeing blood off and on, and and it stopped a little bit, and I said, well, call the doctor. So I called the doctor, you know, and I said, what's the problem? Well, I peed a little blood, and the nurse said, get in here now, you know, And, and they just wanted to check everything out, but I realized it wasn't just a minor symptom or a recurrence of a childhood illness or something. It was, you know, when you're peeing blood, your doctor wants to know that, I understand now. Um, I had psoriasis so bad that I could almost vacuum my sheets off in the morning. There was a, enough DNA in there to form an army of me. Uh, I went to a doctor for that, a dermatologist. His name, and I swear to God, in Santa Monica, his name was Victor Newcomer. And I went to see Dr. Newcomer, and Dr. Newcomer said, first thing, he's checking me out, he goes, do you drink alcohol? Just a couple. I probably drink like anybody else does, you know? And he said, well, stop drinking it all together and stop drinking coffee and then call me in a few weeks and tell me how it's going. So I, I laid off coffee for about four or five days and <laughs> nothing changed. I never called him, you know? When I was about a year and a half sober, I realized everything had cleared up. So I called him. There was a pause that you could have parked a van in uh, on that phone. And he said, and you're telling me that because? I said, well, I'm sober in AA. And he goes, that's great. I'm really happy for you. And I I, just, next time somebody tells you, just do it, you know. And I said, okay. (laughs) You know, and um, I felt like a dope, but I felt like I had to do it and talk to him. And um, I... uh, I wound up going, I was in therapy for a couple of years. It wasn't going well. I'd gotten a degree in journalism, but I put it in a drawer. 
uh, my last journalism gig was writing for the L.A. Times as a stringer, which is a report for the Milwaukee Journal. Actually, they, they needed a writer to cover the United Auto Workers Convention in, in Anaheim. And so the editor at the L.A. Times, they called him and said, do you know anybody out there? And he recommended me. And so they were going to pay me 350 bucks to cover this convention for three days and send him a story every morning. And so I went to the convention, had my little notebook, and I got my interviews. And on the way out of the convention, I stopped at a liquor store on the way home and got some alcohol. And I went back to my mother-in-law's house. Even though I was getting a divorce, my mother-in-law still liked me. And, uh, and she let me stay at her house because it was down far away from my home. And, and so I would stay there, and I'm going to write my story. I'm going to write it. I'm going to write it right now. I'm going to have a couple of drinks. I'm going to write my story. I have a couple of drinks and thank God, it's 7.15. 7.15 is no time to start writing a story, you know. 7.30, perfect. 7.35, I missed it. I missed the window. 8 o'clock, I'll start writing the story. I don't even need to tell you the rest of the story. I sat there. I was supposed to phone the story into the Milwaukee Journal desk at 5 o'clock the next morning because they needed it by 8 o'clock in the morning. And by 5 o'clock the next morning, I was sitting drunk and in tears at, my de- at the desk at my mother-in-law's house because I couldn't write a story. I couldn't get a sentence down on the page. And I called up the guy, and I had my notebook, and I sat there and shook and tried to pull it together enough to just tell him the story verbally while he transcribed it, because they didn't have fax machines or Internet then. And, you know, I, I, could, I just gave him the story that way. And he thanked me after about an hour, and I got off the phone, and I was sick. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to do it better next time. And I went the next day, and I got all my interviews that day. And I was leaving there and driving by the same liquor store and thought... I'm going to get something so that when I'm finished writing the story, I'll have a little reward for myself, and that'll inspire me. So I went to the liquor store, got the alcohol. You know the story. Five o'clock the next morning, you know, I'm, I'm in tears again, and I call the guy up and give him the story from my notes again. And I slept for about two hours, and then I wound up back at the convention center for the third day. I'm not going to do that this today. I'm not going to do this again. It's done. It's over. I've learned my lesson. Fini completo. <laughs> I hang out with all the socialist reporters because they're easy to talk to. And uh, I wind up, they said, hey, there's a party for the, uh, uh, the Chinese ambassador, uh, our ambassador, who used to be the head of the UAW. Uh, and so I went to that party. And I walk in the party door, and the woman standing there says, can I get you a drink? I thought, well, I'm working right now, but if I have a drink now, I won't have to have one later. <laughs> sure, what do you got? She says, well, I'll, I said, yeah, bourbon. She goes, well, I've got Jack Daniels. I said, it'll do. <laughs> and um, there's nothing I like better than after a hard day's work than a good phlegm cutter. You know, you throw it down and... <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. And, um, <laughs> and you know the story. About, about two hours later, I was showing Leonard Woodcock, the United States ambassador to China, how far I could hang off the balcony at the Disneyland Hotel on about the 23rd floor. Uh, I was demonstrating how if I locked my legs on the railing, I could lean way back and hold my arms out. And uh, it, was, it must have been a memorable evening for him. Um, and then I went back, and again, the same exact thing happened. And um, 
the next week or next two weeks later, I got a check for $300. And it was supposed to be $350. And I was so ashamed of what I had been and what I had done that I couldn't call them and tell them that they didn't give me the right amount of money. I just left it and then felt that resentment again and just added not only a resentment toward them, but that heaped on that self-loathing that was already suffocating inside. And I'd been in therapy and that wasn't working. And I'm not a therapy basher, but generally speaking, honesty is a prerequisite for success in therapy. And if you are an alcoholic, and I believe this firmly, if you are a practicing alcoholic, you don't have a clue what honesty is. You don't know what the truth is at all. It's not that you're bad or that you are stupid. We just don't have a clue what the truth is. We can't see it because I have to construct a series of lies inside of myself to justify what I'm doing to myself. And on the 11th of June of 1981, um, I was unable to do that anymore. And I sat at a meditation retreat. I'd gone to this meditation retreat that this therapist was having. And... I sat there and and went through... I was coming off of the drunk from the night before where I had tried to impress a bunch of high school kids that I was a writer and a college professor. And uh, they laughed, and one guy got up as they were leaving and said, you're you're just a drunk, and and left. And I I was humiliated again. And um, so the next day I'm at this meditation retreat because I'm going to get me some spirituality. And... uh, (laughs) And while I was there, I was sitting out on the grounds after the morning meeting there, and I just sat there and and just stared at... I got as far away from the place as I could, and I was going to hang myself. I thought, I can't live like this anymore. I want to die. There's no drama. I didn't have, you know, any kind of drama associated with it. I just felt like I wanted the feeling that I had to end this this stuff. And so uh, I took my belt off, and I was going to do it. Only I had never stuck... I hadn't stuck with... Cub Scouts long enough to get the knots badge, uh, and I didn't have a clue how to tie a knot to hang myself with a belt, and I got so frustrated and so upset, and I just sat there and felt like an absolute zero, just zero, just flat line zero, and at that moment that I felt that way and felt such despair, uh, at the moment I felt that, I felt another feeling at the same time that said, you're everything that you fear, and I still love you. And I didn't know where that came from. And I sat and sobbed for about three and a half, four hours out in this grounds because I couldn't, I thought I was going crazy. I felt loved for about 30 seconds, completely loved inside, and didn't know where that came from. And I wound up a few days later, I, st- I went home from that, con- that uh, retreat and I didn't drink. I haven't had a drink since the 11th of June of 1981, and that's due to Alcoholics Anonymous and the intercession. That's, that's due to the Alcoholics Anonymous and the intersection of a power that's greater than I am that works through people in Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't believe in people at all. And I still didn't when I came to AA, and I was even more horrified to realize that, you know, when I, I, my sister-in-law... The widow, Bob's widow, was an alcoholic also. And she wound up in a rehab. And she got out on the day that I had about four days without a drink. And she said, I need a ride to a meeting on Sunday. Can you give me a ride to an AA meeting? And I said, sure. You know, I've been separated from my wife for about 20 minutes. And um, I thought maybe I can get something going with Debbie, you know. Or, <laughs> and so... I, I, but I, I was going to take her to the meeting and pull up, and I pulled up to the curb. All the way to the meeting, 
She 12-stepped me. This is a woman with 22 days of sobriety. And she talked to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. She talked to me about the people here. She talked to me about the steps. She talked to me about how much easier it was for her to stay sober. Not me. She just told me how it was for her after 22 days of being sober and and doing AA and going to two or three meetings a week in this rehab. She said it really helped her to keep sober and to keep feeling hope. And she looked wonderful. She looked alive. And so I went to this meeting and I pulled up to the curb and I said, I'll come back and get you in, in an hour and a half. And she said, well, why don't you come in and join me? Why don't you just come inside? I'll introduce you to some of my friends. Because I told her I had stopped drinking, trying to make her feel better, that she wasn't alone. I was trying to be... I, I was hallucinating. like I, had, I was detoxing, and I had these invisible gnats that kept congregating in my <laughs> peripheral vision that I had to keep sweeping away. And um, nobody else seemed to see them. So I... I was going to help her, so I, I had a deerstalker hat and sunglasses and shoulder-length hair and my John Lennon mustache, and, and uh, I'm standing in the back. It's about 109 degrees that day. I've got a wool jacket, a wool sweater vest. Got my, my got my writer costume on, and uh, and people are. I'm getting irritated. That people are coming up and going, "Are you new?" And I thought, "No, I've got." I. Uh, I haven't had a drink for five days, or however long it was. I thought new meant that you were intoxicated when you came across the threshold of the meeting. I really don't like the fact that you are making, you are smiling and saying, oh, are you new? I'd thank you very much to back it up a little bit, if you don't mind, because this has been, I'm not new, I've got five days. And this has been the hardest goddamn five days of my entire life. So maybe you can save your little smirk for somebody else, Chester. Um, it didn't come out exactly like that. I, um, I just I said I'm with Debbie, and um, so. I stayed for the meeting. I shook hands. I identified as an alcoholic stupidly. After I did, she said, you didn't have to say that. I thought, would you tell me that? <laughs> God, I, come, I'm human. I feel bad enough already. I've got to stand up and go, I'm Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody, hi, Charlie. And I thought, oh, Jesus, this is horrible. Rub it in, why don't you? And um, I got a sponsor a month later. A little longer than that. I kept going back to the meeting. The second week I went back because Debbie was getting a chip for 30 days, uh, which, boy, I didn't want to miss that. (laughs) And they were all, you know, this whole group of people she got sober with were all a Twitter because Debbie's getting a chip. She's getting a chip, you know. Bravo. <laughs> and then somebody said, and if you stay sober 30 days, you'll get a chip and a hug too. And I thought, well, a chip and a hug. <laughs> I'm sitting here squirming in my skin, batting away imaginary gnats, wearing winter clothes and 109 degrees. I need a goddamn hug right now, you know. <laughs> 
my friend Eileen W. says she came to AA going, help me, you know, and that's exactly what I did. It's just like, help me, but on my terms, you know, don't talk to me about God and, and turn it, turn what over, over what, do what, what, easy does it, that's easy to say, do you tell the people that you owe money that, hey, easy does it, Yeah, Mr. Carney, this is the Internal Revenue Service. You haven't paid us in a few years. Hey, first things first. (laughs) So, I came back to watch Debbie get a chip uh, and a hug. And they, oh, the first meeting I was at, they, they came trotting up. You know, there's always, if, you, if you're lucky, and i got to tell you people who are new, you have found the golden city here. This is not going to happen to you often, to wind up in a group of people that behave as if the group is more important than they are. You have found a group of people that will show you what to do. And I got into a group where there were several people, like the people I've met here, and there are so many people in this room who I know for over years and years and years who mean a lot to me. And some people I know who I can't remember your names because I can't remember my own kids' names a lot of the time, but I, 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 you know, I, I feel differently about things. And my friend Dave and, and Roxanne, Dave came, and Don, who came out from L.A. With, uh, on a different flight, but... Um, you know, they came and picked me up at the airport. That's a thankless job, especially when their speaker missed his flight because he overslept. Uh, so, um, but you have landed in a great place because some of these people came up and got me and said, do you have a big book? And I thought, what kind of a big book are we talking about? <laughs> Does it have a title, perhaps? <laughs> Because I'm, uh, I majored in journalism, minored in English, and I work at a bookstore, and I, we got lots of big books. So how, uh, just how big exactly? I mean, uh, I didn't say that. I said something like no. But I, uh, oh, you got to get a big book, you know. So we went over and got me a big book. It didn't look that big to me. I mean, it's just this book, you know, with a blue. I'm surprised they didn't just call it blue, you know. Uh, it was, it was, all I could do was judge the whole time, but I couldn't say anything because then you wouldn't like me. So, or you'd ask me politely to leave and, and your hat would be off to me as I understood it. But I, um, so I got the big book, you know, and, and the woman said, well, that's, that's $5 because it was $5 in 1981. I'm sure it was $5 in 1976, 1980. It's been $5 forever. But when you're four days sober, Five bucks, a lot of scratch to pull together at one time for a book that you have no interest in reading. One that has a title like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. Why don't you just have a title called I Touch Myself in Weird Places? I guarantee you wouldn't be lugging that thing around at the coffee house. (laughs) And it's got that cover, and it just just all sounded bad to me. And then 
I start reading this. So I, I got the book, you know, and I brought it home, and I, you know, glanced at it, and I've been, I've parsed sonnets by Shakespeare and John Donne and Spencer and Dryden and all those guys in my English career, and I, I can tell you where the sejura pause falls in the line. I can tell you what the rhyme scheme is, what the meter is. I can take out the evocative language and pick out the words to tell you exactly how John Donne felt in 1620. I couldn't tell you how I was feeling at that moment. I can tell you exactly how he felt back then. So I'm not terribly interested in Gma, ain't it grand, the wind stop blowing. <laughs> Or King Alcohol and the shivering denizens of his mad realm. Or, I mean, I didn't give a good goddamn about Mr. Brown either. I, uh, it just, I looked at that thing and thought, this is so, my friend Scott R. talks, it's, it's just, there's no other word for it, lame. Lame, 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 lame. And, I left it to one side, and after, I, after about a month of going back to this meeting, I went back after Debbie took her chip the next week, which was my third week of sobriety, because I was terrified, because two days after she took her 30-day chip, Debbie went out and got drunk again. And it took her nine years to get back to AA. And I came back because I was afraid. And I'll tell you, what, what, I'll tell you how insidious this is. My first thought was, oh, great she gets to drink again. And it sends a shiver down my spine now, but that's what I thought. Is oh, good. She drink, brings me to AA, and she gets her chip and a hug, and now she gets to go back out and drink again. And I know I can't drink again, and I'm stuck in AA. Not only that, the book was five bucks, and I only had two bucks. I had three, but I had, someone said, keep one for the basket. We'll take two, and when you get the money, you can pay us for the rest of it. And I walked away from that table thinking, now I'm into, I'm into the IRS, I'm into credit card companies, I'm into my boss for writing him bad checks, and now I'm into Alcoholics Anonymous for three bucks. How deep is this pool? I can't seem to find the bottom. I'm just uh, dying here. I owe AA three bucks. This stinks. Next week meeting, I went back and I had the three bucks. I went right up to her and paid her back, you know, immediately. And I walked away from that table and I felt strangely satisfied. And I didn't know why. And you know why? Because I'd actually followed through on something that I said I was going to do. And I didn't have to rationalize why I owe them three bucks anymore. I didn't read the book. Why should I give you the three bucks? I don't care. I'm not going to stay here. Why would I pay you? I can just not go back to that meeting and I won't owe you the three bucks anymore. And then I can try to rationalize why I didn't pay you the three bucks for the rest of my life. You know, I paid the three bucks and I was fine. And I came back to that meeting and I stayed there and I didn't work the steps. They made me a greeter after a while, which is really like, uh, when you took one look at me, you really didn't feel like you were entirely welcome. Uh, It was, you know... I just stood there and shake people, would shake people's hands as they walked through the, the room and said, Hi, I'm Charlie, and, you know, you know. And, um, <laughs> and after about five weeks, there was a speaker there who suggested that I might come to meetings closer to where I worked because I was living in Orange County and working in Santa Monica, which is about 40 miles away. And I said, well, my rationale was I can't go to more than one meeting a week because I have to drive back to 
Orange County, and by the time I get home, it's about 9 o'clock, and I can't, you know, there's no meetings that start at 9 o'clock. And then some, the speaker said, why don't you, because he'd asked me how long I was sober and how many meetings I was going to. It was Keith C. And Keith says, how many, you know, why don't you go to meetings by, by where you work? <laughs> You're a dick. I didn't say it in exactly those words. I, um, I said something like, really? And I went, he gave me his card with a phone number. He said, here's the address of where the meeting is. Come to that meeting. I'm going to look for it. It's Wednesday night. And I went to the Pacific Group meeting on Wednesday night. And I was doubly horrified at that meeting. Because that was, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Uh, <laughs> everybody's excited and a quiver and, and it's just this energy level like this, you know, and everybody's shaking hands and it was just really friendly fellowship, which is great for you but I don't like people I don't want to be near you and then this woman named Alice kept asking me, you got a sponsor? And I, no, I don't have a sponsor, thank you I don't, I'm an English major, I mean, I have a journalism degree, I don't need a sponsor, you know, why would I need well, they'll take you through the book Take me through the book. <laughs> Woman, are you brain dead or what? Take me through the book? This ain't Moby Dick, sister. <laughs> but after she'd bought... And Alice, i got to tell you something. Alice had 35 days. I had 45 or 50 days, I forget. When I told her, she was very upset because I had more time than she did, but I didn't know as much as she did. And she said, where do you go to meetings? And I said, well, I go to one on Sunday night in Orange County. And she said, but where do you go to meetings here? And I said, well, I'm just here at this meeting. This guy gave me this card, and that's why I'm here. And she said, why don't you come to the meeting tomorrow night get you a sponsor? I said, I don't know where the meeting is tomorrow night. And she said, you got a piece of paper? I said, yeah. I gave her a check deposit slip because the fat chance I'd be using that anytime soon. <laughs> and um, I want to tell you something. There are a lot of little, little, tiny, wonderful events in AA that all of us will have if we stay. And Alice took out a pen that had a point like a hypodermic needle for a baby. And she wrote the directions of every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in the Pacific group from the driveway of where I worked. You pull out the driveway and you turn left on Tuesdays. Then you make a quick right down Marine. You go down to the bottom of the hill, you know, and if anybody, and it, and it starts at 7, but if you can't get there by 7, anybody gives you crap, you tell them to come see me. You tell them there's everything you can do to get to that meeting. And I'm okay. And she wrote it all down. I kept that thing in my wallet until it fell apart. And I went to every single meeting. And people, I finally got a sponsor who was really kind until I talked to him. And then um, <laughs> they, uh, they flip on you fast. And, I, uh, and he, he gave me some directions. And he started, started telling me to do things. And I said, uh, are you going to take me through the book? And he looked at me like, what? 
No, I'm not going to take you through the book. Just read the book and go to a book study. What do you want me to do, read it for you? You know? Are you willing to do anything to stay sober? And I said, yeah. And he said, good. Shave that mustache off and get a haircut. I'll see you Friday at the men's stag. I thought, yeah, wait a minute. No way. And you know what? I did. Because I, I realized he had said... He reminded me that I had said that I would do anything to stay sober. And he said, if you're not willing to do something as simple as what I ask you to do, like shave, what makes me think you're going to do the steps when I ask you to do them? I just want to find out if you're a loser or not. I guess I'll find out on Friday night. And he got up and walked out. And I was furious. I couldn't believe I was 30 years old. I couldn't believe this was happening. And I went home. And against my better judgment and against all belief I have about everything, I shaved that mustache off. And I got to the meeting that Friday night and Bill comes scuttling across the room and gets up next to me and he's about six foot six and he puts his arm around my shoulder and he goes, here we go, sport. And he's been my sponsor for 23 years. You know, he's a good, he's a good guy. Because, I'll tell you something. I'm gonna, you, cannot, you cannot ask the wrong person to sponsor you in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can't do it. You can ask somebody that might not be particularly suited for you after a while, but you cannot ask the wrong person because you're saving their life too. So if you don't have a sponsor tonight, you get one before you leave the room tonight. I'm serious. Don't, don't walk away without getting a sponsor. Don't, don't go interviewing them like it's going to be a big deal for them to sponsor you. Uh, you'll be doing them a favor by asking them. Just ask them. And I did that, and I started getting commitments. Like my, my sponsor gave me some directions. Get a commitment. Get commitments at every meeting. Get to the meeting an hour early and shake hands. Be kind to people. Ask how their day was. Ask their name. Get their phone number from the men. <laughs> and just do the stuff and go out for coffee afterward and, I'll, and call me every day. Well, what about, what about the steps? I'll tell you about that later. So I did this for months, and I finally went to him and said, what am I going to do the steps? I keep hearing everybody talking about working the steps. I'm working the steps. I'm working, working, working. I'm like, you got to get some cross-training clothes to do the steps, you know. <laughs> Spot me. I'm going to do three. Okay. Uh, and he looked at me and he said, what do you mean when are you going to start doing the steps? You've been here for eight months. And I said, well, yeah. But you said you'd tell me to do the steps when it was time. And I said, yeah. Have you been going to your meetings every day? Yeah. You got a commitment at every meeting? Yeah. Do you pray in the morning? Because when I was new, he would call me from 60 miles away. He was a milkman. And he would call me on his route at 5 in the morning so I'd get up in time to get to my off, my work, my office, my desk at the back of the bookstore. <laughs> he would call me and he would say, here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to get on your knees and I want you to ask God to make you aware of what's going on in the day and keep you sober. Do that right now. And I put the phone down. I swear to God, I put the phone down. I get on my knees and I would lean on the bedspread and say, okay, God, help me stay sober today, please. And it was like a, I felt like a child. I felt like an idiot. You know, I wanted to be more articulate and more spiritual than that. All that would come out was, I need your help. Please help me today. Thank you. I got back on the phone. I did it. He goes, okay, do that every single morning. And he would call me in the mornings for about a week and say, okay, get on your knees now. Okay, I'll wait. And I put the phone down and I pray. I don't know if the prayers ever left the room, but I believe that they did. And I believe that Bill had the best interest for, in for me. And I've been doing that ever since. I do that every morning. It's the first thing I do. But, um, you know, he, he stuck with me. He did everything he asked me to do. And, I, and he said, are you praying every morning? Yeah. You're calling me every day? Yeah. Are you going out for coffee after the meetings? Yes. Are you talking to people? Yes. You got phone numbers? Of course I do. You call somebody every day? Yes. And he goes, okay, what part of the first three steps do you think that you're not doing? Because these are not 
theories, and this is not theoretical, and this is not sitting around parsing sentences and figuring out what Bill meant by although. (laughs) This is just doing the deal and leaving yourself open for God to come find you. Leave yourself open for him to find you. I told my son that. The, I have I got to speed forward here. I, I've i stayed sober for 23 years because of my group and because of Alcoholics Anonymous and because of people all over the country like you guys who are so kind to me beyond my ability to accept it and believe it. And yet I stay sober most days not even knowing. I just I just don't know. I, I, I'm fine. I'm, I've been going through a divorce for the last couple of years. Uh, I married a woman I completely fell in love with in 1997 and we had two children then we, we started getting a divorce I'm not going to talk about the circumstances because that woman may she's she's in the program and she may need the help of somebody in this room one day and I'm not going to muddy the pond for her uh, we just had problems and we got a divorce and it was the most painful thing I've ever been through because I have, we had two children I thought I was never going to be a father and I had my first child my son at 49 and my daughter at 50 I was the oldest father in the Lamaze class uh, <laughs> The young fathers were helping me up off the floor, you know, after the, after the breathing exercises. And uh, I just had visions of my kids, you know, when they're 17, saying, you got to come over and watch my dad. He's going to sit up at around 8 o'clock. <laughs> you ought to see him take solids. It's a riot. But uh, I, was, I was exactly 11 years older than my father and mother were when they had me. And I judged them for being too old for having me. My dad died before I got sober, and I was never able to make amends to him. And yet I did because of the direction of people in AA and Al-Anon. I went to an Al-Anon conference, and on the way home from the Al-Anon conference, I was 10 years sober, and I put off making amends to my father. And I realized the conference was about a mile from where he was buried, and I went there and made the amends. I didn't feel like the sky had opened up, like, you know, there was a ray of light. I did exactly what Clint H. talks about. I bought some paper towels from a store across the street. I bought some scissors, and I bought some Windex, and I bought a carnation because my dad loved carnations. And I went there, and I cut around his grave, and I cleaned off the headstone, which didn't need much cleaning off, and I put the carnation down, and I just sat there and talked to him and told him about you. You know, I, I just apologized for not ever being able to find a connection with him in my life because I always kept my father at arm's length, always would not engage him under any circumstances and thought that he was completely disappointed in me, so why bother anyway? You know, Mr. Marine Corps drill instructor with me. My mother had these three babies that had died at birth, and I never, I thought, well, yeah, but she, you know, I didn't understand the pain in her life that went on and why she related to me the way she did until I heard Sheila talk at a conference one day, and I sat there just like I felt today, um, oh, pardon me, um, listening to Joanne talk about her son, who is a friend of mine, and, and Terry is doing really well, and I see him every week. But, you know, I listened to Sheila talk about, about having a baby that died, and, and I understood my mother at that moment. It just kind of opened up my eyes, and I, I thought, I'm completely indebted to her for forever for allowing me to glimpse what was going on with my mom at the time because I couldn't get it any other way except to hear it from an alcoholic person saying it. I don't know why. And I made amends to my dad. And I made amends to my mother because of what Sharon Barker talks about is, you know, uh, just pay the money back. Pay her the money back. It was a mother loan. I understand it was free and no interest, but I decided to be big about it and pay it back. And uh, uh, she didn't protest. 
you know, uh, and I paid her back over about a year. I, I had a, a note on my refrigerator with how much each week was, and I would draw a line through it every week, and I would send her a check with a note, and I started to become closer to my mom that way. I was told by my sponsor not to come to our Thanksgiving day, our Thanksgiving night party that we have every year where Clancy leads the meeting and they hand out numbers and you participate that way. I was told, you go down to your mother's house and you spend Thanksgiving with your mother and your stepfather and you, you be a son to her. And I did that. I've never, I did that up until she died. She died about three years ago. And my mom and I started to develop a relationship. Not a great one, but the last thing my mother told me about three hours before she died was that she loved me. And that was enough for me. And she told me about two weeks before that that Alcoholics Anonymous, because she'd always ask me, do you still have to go to those meetings? How come you always, you come over here to see me and then you have to leave and go to a meeting? I'm, why do you have, because she wanted me to stay with her, you know. And, and I said, Mom, I've got to go to the, I'm going to go to the meeting. I need to go to the meeting and I'll be back afterward. And how come you keep going? Well, she stopped asking me that about the last year before she died. And one day we were talking and she said, you know, I think the best thing you ever did was go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that, that meant everything to me, you know. Um, my father, I'll tell you a story and I'll sit down. My dad, uh, every day from the time I was in the seventh grade to about the 10th or 11th grade, he would get up in the morning. He was a Minnesota farm boy from Fargo. Uh, he, would, he would get up at four in the morning every morning, come out in the kitchen, uh, smoke a couple of cigarettes and read the paper. Then he would go and he would make me lunch and he would make a sandwich for me and put fruit in it. My parents had no resources at all, really, but they always made sure I had food. And my dad would make the sandwich for me and put it together, and he would put it in the bag, and he would fold it nicely, and he would write my name on it, and he would set it by the front door. And then he would get dressed and, and shower and go to work. And I would get up an hour after he left, and I'd grab that lunch, and I'd go to school, and as I crossed the property line, I'd chuck that lunch in the trash can. Because cool kids don't carry their lunch to school. Dorks do, and I don't need one more piece of evidence to identify me as a dork. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed that my parents can't give me money to buy lunch, and I'm embarrassed by them, and I'm embarrassed by everything related to me, and I don't want that. And I'd throw it in the trash, and every time I did that, it would twist the screw a little tighter in my gut. And over the years, I couldn't talk to my father. Wonder why. You know why? Because he was disappointed in me, that's why. That's how I felt. And it came out in my inventory, this thing. And I, when I made my amends to him, I talked about that and said, I, you know, I'm sorry. I was, I was a, a fool to not recognize you for doing that for me. And then I went to my mom's house after I'd done that and was feeling a little better. And I said, you know, I used to, I was sitting at the kitchen table with her one day. And I said, you know, I used to throw dad's lunch out every morning. And she said, yeah, I know. I said, how did you know? And she said, well, he used to tell me. I said, how did he know? She said, well, he used to quiz you every so often and ask you how your sandwich was. How was your peanut butter sandwich? And you'd say it was fine. And it was bologna. <laughs> and uh, how was your apple today? Was it, was it, it looked a little like it might not be fresh. Was it fresh? Oh, it was perfect, Dad. It was an orange. And he knew I was throwing it away. I looked at her across the table and I said, if he knew I was throwing it away, why did he keep making lunch for me every day? And she just smiled. And I got it. That's the kind of love we're talking about in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's dry-eyed humility. It's not being worried about the results of your actions. It's taking action purely for the joy of doing it. When you're new, you take it purely for the joy of them not asking you again. <laughs> but, 
when you have a little time, we take it for the joy of doing it without any thought of who's going to benefit from it. We just do it. The first meeting I went to, someone had set up the chairs, made the coffee, brought the cookies. The secretary looked good. There was a speaker who was there on time and had a coat and tie on because it's a program of attraction. And he was, being, he was showing his respect for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sat and listened to that, and I never thought about it. I just took the benefits of it. And those people didn't put those things out and do all that stuff thinking, well, I better get some credit for this. They just did it because they knew that somebody new was going to come in that night, and it was just my night. And I got to benefit from it, and I have been benefiting from it for 23 years. The generosity and humility and kindness of Alcoholics Anonymous members. And I've come to love people. I've come to love my children. I've come to make sure that my son will never, ever wonder why I would make lunch for him. You know? I adore my children. And I, I, the nourishment for my spirit is in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is where the lunch is, folks. And if you choose not to take it like I did, and you choose to feel angry and hurt and hungry for something that you can't describe like I did, and you walk out of here and you go back out and drink and destroy your life and want to come back, we understand that. The lunch will still be served. We're not going to stop putting it out there for you and for each other. And that's what I've learned. And that is the benefit I've gotten from people in AA. That's the joy I've found in my life. That's the connection to a power greater than I am that I I can't... describe to you how much I owe Alcoholics Anonymous and am trying to give back and that you can stay sober through almost insurmountable things that you see. You can stay through it. You can stay through humiliation. You can stay through sorrow. You can stay through disappointment. You can stay. And I hope that you stay and and stick around and hear the rest of the speakers this weekend. Thanks so much for having me.